calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today on the show, most of us have heard the phrase, bring your A-game, whether at work or playing sport. But what does it mean to be in your A-game? What separates leaders from managers? And who will emerge as winners in 2020 with all the challenges the global pandemic has thrown at us? Here to talk to us about all that and more is Fran Skinner, co-founder of AUM Partners, a boutique consulting firm that works exclusively with financial services firms to help their teams achieve even higher levels of performance. Fran is a certified public accountant and a chartered financial analyst. In addition to her work at AUM Partners, Fran is also a regular contributor to Barron's. One more quick note. If, like me, you dread networking and Zoom has made it even more awkward, be sure to listen to the end when Fran shares tips for leveraging virtual connections to build your network. And now on with the show. Please enjoy my conversation with Fran Skinner. Fran Skinner, welcome. Hello, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really great to have you here today. So I always like to start somewhere interesting. And on your bio, there was an irresistible factoid uh, that your favorite hobby is playing live tournament poker. So I'd love to start there. How is it that you started playing poker and how did you end up in live tournament poker? Oh, well, my family is a card playing family. And um, somewhere about 20 years ago, I was in Las Vegas with, of all people, my mom passing by a poker room and they were just about to start a tournament. And literally, she's like pulling on my arm. You should do this. You should do this. And I was scared to death. Did it. Only woman, only woman in the tournament and just had the time of my life, really enjoyed it. So since then, I've tried, you know, prior to this year to carve out a number of times each year to go someplace and do a big tournament. I wanted to improve my game somewhere along the way about 10 years ago. And I actually took a immersion class from Annie Duke. And that was a lot of fun and it absolutely improved my game. So that's what I like to do, uh, you know, in normal times and be with people and, and play cards. That is great. Actually, Annie Duke has been one of our speakers uh, earlier this year. So we're very familiar with her. I would love to find out more about your sort of slightly unconventional path into the financial services industry. You're both a chartered accountant and a chartered financial analyst. But as I understand it, you didn't exactly sort of wake up one day and say, I want to be in the financial services industry. So tell us your path and to how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I actually in college started out as an elementary education major. 
And luckily for me, I got the epiphany that that wasn't a real good idea in uh, the second semester of my freshman year and dropped all those classes and um, thought I'd like to go into business. I've you know, always sort of had a side interest in business. And so I started taking business classes and that was great until about junior year when I was like, okay, now what am I actually going to major in? And had the idea back then you could study for the CPA exam while you were still in college. And so I thought, this is great. I'll be a CPA. And so I started out in auditing, didn't care for that. That wasn't a good fit for me. And then I switched over to accounting in investment operations at Allstate, and that was a much better fit. And after three years, I was approached with an opportunity to start a new function, asset allocation and planning, and moved entirely into the finance realm. But you know, was sort of lacking finance, actually, as a, you know, I had one class. And so I took the CFA program then to sort of fill in all of those gaps. And uh, it did. It was, uh, it was really great. But along the way, what you don't see on there is like, I even have like some insurance certifications and, and, you know, just, it was a lot of winding road trying to find what my path was, but I eventually just found I loved the finance end of it and then married that now over the last 18 years with consulting, doing work on the talent side as well. So it took some convincing, though, for you to study for your CFA. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that and also sort of the big lesson for you uh, in, in going through with that program and then, you know, being in the workforce when you were, I think, about to have a baby. Just what sort of lessons are there for any woman who might be listening? Yeah, so when I knew I needed the finance for this new role I was in, my boss strongly encouraged me to start the CFA program. Well, in my head, I was this fraud pulling one over on all these really smart finance people. And if I started sitting for the CFA exam, they'd figure that out if I started failing. So I wouldn't do it. But my husband was going through the program and he was already on level two and his level one books were around the house. So on nights and weekends, I was self-teaching myself the material that I needed for this role that I was in. And that worked beautifully for a couple of years, went really well. And then I was on maternity leave with my second son. My first son was two, my first son, you know, a few weeks old. And one day an envelope shows up at the house from Amer, former CFA name, and I open it up and it says, welcome Francis to the CFA program. And what had happened was my husband had signed me up. I don't recommend this to anybody else, <laughs> but my husband had signed me up because he saw like I was just devouring the material. I was learning the material. He and I were discussing it constantly as peers, even though now he was wrapping up the program. And he's the one who actually shined the light on the self-talk that I had going on in my head of, you know, you're pulling one over on people, you're pulling a fast one. And until he really, you know, you know, confronted me, made me confront that, I didn't even realize that that's what was holding me back. And that's actually been something that I've worked very hard through the years since, you know, 25 years, 20 plus years that I received that when I coach female executives or emerging women considering careers in this industry, how many times I have found that they too have that self-talk going on in their head that's holding them back. 
And so trying to help them shine the light on what's going on inside there that, you know, keeping you from pursuing what you might really love. So that negative self-talk sounds really a lot like imposter syndrome that Absolutely. many people suffer from. Yep. 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 So, so in your coaching work, when you do have high level executives who could be at the top of their game, but still think they're about to get found out for being an imposter, how do you bring them around to, to sort of believe that they are there because they deserve to be there? They've worked hard to get there. So part of it is, you know, one of the things we do is we have a, a work preference diagnostic tool and, and it's the first step with any coaching assignment that I take on. And they would go through this preference assessment, which helps give me data, you know, because I'm dealing with data people, data-driven people. So I would take that, those results, and walk through and have them tell me stories that I could use that talks about how they, you know, have shown up strong in these areas that are showing up strong in the data and how they can leverage that going forward. But a big, big key is this data is just trying to combine that data with storytelling to sort of let them see it. Like this is what's propelled you to this point in your career. Why do you doubt it can propel you into the next step as well? So that's a big part of it is, is just trying to bring them something more tangible to overcome those self-doubts. So I think regular listeners will know I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of storytellers. I really believe they are powerful motivators. Um, I would love to spend a bit more time talking about the work that you do as a coach and in particular the sort of idea of the A-game. So you co-founded AUM Partners um, and, and your firm specializes in working with financial services firms around the world to develop leaders at every level. And what you say is to help all employees be in their a game. So my question is really, what is the A game? Sure. So the A game, how we describe it, picture a four box uh, matrix and running along the horizontal axis is your, your ability to do a job because you've been trained, you've gotten the education. We call it your eligibility to do something. So your experience, your certifications, et cetera. So that's the horizontal axis. The vertical axis is what we call the suitability, that it aligns work that aligns with your passions, your interests, all of all of that kind of coming with, from within you. We frequently refer to it as your DNA. So the perfect intersection is being that you can do the job, that eligibility, and you want to do the job, that suitability. So when those two perfectly intersect in the upper right-hand corner, that's when you're in your A-game. And that's what, you know, that's at the foundation of everything we do with AUM Partners is we want to try and help get people 75% or more of their time in that upper right-hand quadrant because research shows if you can be spending 75% or more of your time there, you're three times more likely to be successful and engaged in whatever it is that you're doing. So we tend to think of, I guess, our leaders as being in their A-game, being at the sort of the top of their game, but we all have very sort of deeply embedded assumptions um, about leaders and whether they're innate or developed and, and how they emerge. Um, so let's just start with sort of a common understanding of what is leadership so that we have, we're all operating, I guess, on a common foundation for, for leadership. So in your mind, what is good leadership? 
So the first and foremost, and particularly in our industry, is that you want to be a leader. One of the things in this work preference that we measure, it's called wants to lead. And how many times someone will bring us in, they want us to coach someone, um, be you know, work with a team, and we'll find that there are people in leadership positions that really don't want to be there. And in our industry, we do this quite frequently. Oh, you're an amazing analyst, so now we're going to make you the head of research or you know, anywhere else. You're a great salesperson, we're going to put you in charge of the sales team. And so so many times when we're brought in, when there's maybe a little bit of tension or something's not quite working out, it's because we have a leader sitting in that chair that really that's not their sweet spot. That's not really what they wanted to do, but so many times compensation structure or something else makes it desirable for them to step into roles like that that may not necessarily be their best fit. So that's the first one. Um, that you want to be in that chair. The second one, and, and I'll run a few of these together, is appreciating people for being people, not just the tools that you're using and how far that can go for getting discretionary effort and loyalty from people. So that's a big one. And then another one I would say is the ability to influence or move people. So how that that's not directive language. That's not, I'm going to use this one tool I have, which is a hammer and I'm going to get what I want. It's understanding how do, how are you motivated? I want to understand that. And I'm going to work to meet you there to help get everything I can out of you. And then go to the next person as well, because it's not a one size fits all. So those would be the top ones that I see are strong in some of the best leaders that I've worked with in our industry. So what about those leaders that you say find themselves in the position of leading, even though they didn't exactly hope to be there? Um, how do you work with those leaders to, I guess, bring out the potential to be a great leader, even though they aren't what you'd call sort of the natural born leader? Mm -hmm. So some of them have elements that they can leverage that may not be, I want to be a leader, but they might be a great influencer, particularly people coming from sales, that successful salespeople are usually very good influencers. So there's keys, there's elements there that we can use. So the big key for me when I go into a situation like that is essentially teaching them how to delegate. That just because that's what they inherited does not mean that that's what they should be keeping. And that's just not, you know, bringing a bunch of people in the room and saying, you're going to take this over, you're going to take this over. It's actually training and a process to better understand, you know, self-diagnose, this is not a good fit for me. We have a number of tools that we use to identify those specific things that you're doing that aren't your sweet spot. And then picking the person who it is their sweet spot. And because there's, you know, this happened to me at one point in my career. I remember I was, you know, talking to a coworker and I had to go back into my office to work on something. And I, you know, sort of whined about it. And I'm like, oh, I've got to go in and I've got to do such and such. And one of the people I was talking to, like, you don't like doing that? I'd love that. Would you train me? And that was a breakthrough for me as a leader to understand just because I don't like it, I think it's like, the worst thing I have to do today, that somebody else, it is their sweet spot. And so sure enough, I did training and moved that responsibility to another person on my staff. They thrived and they were so appreciative because now they had added another 
thing that is in their A game to their daily responsibilities. So that would be that would be a really big thing is how to delegate, how to match up the tools so that you're actually filling other people's A game bucket. So I know that you've been trying to sort of move the dial on the diversity front and you have this phrase, the grow your own philosophy. Could you explain a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, through the years, I've been on so many working teams and, you know, different industry groups where people do a lot of sharing. They talk about what they've tried, what's worked. And the one thing consistently that I have heard when people have had success stories, it's that they basically had this grow your own philosophy of, I will invest in people. They may not have what we need. So think about, again, we were talking about A-game, right? It's the combination of the eligibility and the suitability. They focus on the suitability. What aligns with their passion, their preferences, their traits, their attributes? So what's their DNA? And I'm willing then to, on the eligibility front, invest in them in certifications, training, experience, you know, rotation assignments, whatever that might be. And that's what I have found that they're looking young many times. So they're looking in the colleges. So that's a lot of why I do reach out to colleges and do presentations for them to sort of wake people up to opportunities in finance. But they also, and this is really big on the advisor side, they're very open to the career changers. So career changers, how many great advisors I've worked with had started out in some form of teaching or education. It might be corporate education. It might be elementary. But it's stunning to me how many times I've gone into work with a very successful advisor team to find that the advisor started out someplace in education. So on, on the wealth management side, advisor side, they're also very good about supporting these career changers that if you have the DNA, they'll invest in you. So those would be the two ways in terms of the grow your own is that you look for people with the DNA and say, I'm willing to invest in you. So whether that's women, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, culture, it's all the different types of diversity that you proactively go out there and look for and say, I'm willing to invest. So your work as a consultant is really very people focused. And I'm wondering um, how this year, sort of the global COVID pandemic has really forced su such tremendous changes in, in terms of how we work. How has it changed the work that you do uh, this year compared to say the year ago? Yeah, so like everyone else, obviously had to adapt. So in a perfect world prior to this year, I love traveling. I love being in a room full of people, maybe in front of an audience and, you know, working with them or even just one-on-one -on -one meetings. A lot of times I'll do that. So this year, trying to figure out how can I still connect? First of all, have people not drop the ball on so much of this that's so important and then how to connect with them. And it's really been interesting, you know, early on, a lot of trial and error like everyone else, but all the you know, way to, you can still connect, you know, using video and how important it is to try and get people one-on-one -on -one rather than group. So that's probably been a big thing is I do like doing group work, but how often I've actually had to, instead of doing one, 
you know, call with five people on it. I'm doing five one-hour calls, things along those lines. Um, that, you know, really knowing when to use breakout rooms, getting people, giving them safe spaces, um, and just really encouraging people to not drop the ball on this because a lot of other people aren't. And they're keeping going, and you want to make sure you're not playing catch-up in 2021 when hopefully we all do start being mobile again, that you find out you've lost a year and a half when your competitors have actually been upgrading all along. Well, in terms of making connections, that reminds me, you had a terrific article fairly recently in Barron's that was titled Leverage Virtual Connections to Build Your Network. And I just want to read uh, for the listeners something from the opening. It says, there will be an interactive event. Do you A, cringe and hit delete, B, sign up, but then not actually attend, C, attend, but jump off as soon as the interactive part begins, uh, or D, regard this as an opportunity to network and fully participate in the experience to expand your connections. So I'll have to admit that when I read that, uh, I was like, well, I'm between an A, the cringing and hitting delete, and the C sort of jumping off right before that has to happen. And I'm assuming that there are some in the audience who feel just the same way that I do. So for those of us who really do need to do a better job of building connections in the virtual world, what are one or two things that we really should try to keep in mind? So the first, you have no idea how much positive feedback I've gotten just from listing those four things <laughs> in terms of people saying, oh my gosh, that's me. Yes. So one is the self-awareness that I'm doing it. The second yeah. one is it's not easy. I mean, it, you know, and this is what I said later in the article, that when you're in person and you're networking, I find that to be difficult and I'm I'm pretty extroverted person. But to walk into a room full of people, you're carrying a glass of wine and you're looking for the most inoffensive group that you can insert yourself into and try and force yourself into their conversation. Whereas in the virtual world, that when they do do breakouts, that there's usually an exercise, there's a prompt, there's a reason you're going to the breakout rooms and you're put with random people, usually strangers. So looking at it differently and saying, actually, I have a unique opportunity due to this, you know, lockdown and restricted mobility to do less painful networking if I'm willing to give it a try. And that's a big thing is just being willing to give it a try because it's so easy to hit close the window, I'm out of here once, you know, and I've seen this when I'm giving presentations and I always have interactive parts where people go to breakout rooms and they say, okay, now 20 minutes in, now we're ready to go to breakout rooms. And depending on the technology you're using, all of a sudden I start seeing those drop down things coming down, say Mary Smith has left the meeting, et cetera. And it's really a missed opportunity in a time where we can't be so frivolous to dismiss any opportunity to make connections. And I just recently did a CFA Cincinnati event and I received a number of emails after the fact telling me the connections they made in the breakout section and how you know helpful that was. So, you know, big thing is the self-awareness, where am I on that A through D scale? And secondly, just basically saying I'm in for an hour and I'm going to do this because I don't really have a lot of opportunities to expand my network right now. Yeah. 
So this year has obviously wrought so many changes and we're seeing some organizations and some people thrive and, and others uh, not faring quite as well. And one of the things that we chatted about on the phone uh, last week was sort of the winners and losers that you've seen uh, through this year. Talk to us a bit more about uh, what separates uh, those who will thrive and emerge stronger versus those who won't. First and foremost are the people who, whatever their plans and goals were for 2020, that they maintain those goals. I mean, they're right now, a number of people in my network, my clients, they're about to enter into December with this celebration mindset of everything we accomplished. In January, this is what we said we were going to do. We not only did all of that, but we converted our business to virtual, et cetera. So that's one of them is whatever the goals are, not making excuses because of you know what's happened, where we're at. And as you're looking at 2021's goals, having that same mindset. The second one I would say is a big one from the separation is the people who completely understand the difference and got it if they didn't prior to this year, the difference between selling and marketing. You know, if, if anything, I've been telling people that 2020 was the year of the marketer emerging, understanding, you know, brand awareness and everything you have to do that may not necessarily be a salesperson knocking on your door. My own business is a perfect example. Started doing, you know, tried to be much more prolific in my writing and in a lot of different things along those lines, you know, that I would consider to be marketing. And how many new clients we have gotten this year that I didn't even know prior to this year who, oh, I read your article, oh, I heard you on a podcast, oh, I saw you on a webinar. So that is a big differentiator and that's here to stay. I mean, prior to this year, that was always something that was very important, but trying to get people to understand that because they were really grounded. Our industry is very grounded in that sales mentality. Um, and I believe going forward that this is going to continue, you know, distinguishing people, the people who understand the power of marketing and leveraging that for, you know, getting new clients, strengthening your relationship with current clients in terms of value add services that you've included now that you never thought of before this year. So all of those. So the winners and the losers this year are the people who completely get marketing and, you know, not just selling. So now our last few minutes together, uh, I always ask two sort of final questions of all my guests. Um, and if you've heard the podcast before, you, you may know what's coming, but in case you don't, um, the first one uh, is from, I guess, a NASA education module that I saw where NASA asks students to think about they're about to go on a long duration space flight and they can take with them one object uh, along or on board. So my question to guests is always, you've got one object to take, uh, what would you take on your long, long duration space flight? So this answer comes from when I was a senior in high school and I was going back in the day, we were going on a senior trip and I bought a blank um, journal and I just journaled the entire trip, which was fantastic. And I was basically shutterfly before there was shutterfly because I would leave spaces for pictures that I knew I had taken because I wanted to go back in and sort of tape those in there. And I love that because I am a storyteller. And so that helped 
me in terms of when I came back and I wanted to share with my family this amazing experience, but I was trying to cram, you know, it was one of those, you're going to see, you know, 12 countries in eight days kind of thing. And there was no way I was going to remember everything. So I just, that was a big breakthrough for me. And I've always then, since then, I've been this journaler, this, you know, picture taker, storyteller, whatever you want to call it. So what I would take with me would be, if you say it can only be one, but it would be a really big one, it would be a blank journal that I would be able to record my experiences and go back and sort of relive and then be able to share those stories with other people. Because I I found storytelling is a breakthrough in so many things, in group work, huge, you know, as you get people starting to tell stories, but in one-on-one coaching, that is the breakthrough that you have them giving me examples from the past to help open their eyes to things, whether it be strengths they don't realize they have, or maybe blind spots that, you know, they can keep telling you these stories with these, you know, less than desirable outcomes. And you can kind of get them there with, gee, what's the common thread in all of these stories? So that would be what I'd take with. I'm curious, uh, when you think of journaling today, do you still write by hand or do you write using a computer? Both. So huh. when I was traveling a lot, yeah. there's an app called One Day um, that I would you know, type in. Other times I would literally just open Word, depending on where I, I was in the Uber. Something had just, you know, I've just finished a day with a client that was just amazing and I wanted to capture my thoughts. And I would literally just open Word and I'd be typing as fast as I can before we'd get to the airport. And I also still have blank journals that when I go on trips, uh, or something special is going on. I I do like that that handwriting, um, capturing things. I d- I don't know why. So and I don't necessarily see a theme when I pick the typing versus when I pick the journaling. But it's it's both. I think we're losing the sort of the the, the art of handwriting. I think you know when I grew up, we we had to learn cursive. And I think of my kids, they can not only not write in cursive, but they can't read in cursive. Right. And I think it's a, a great shame today. Um, so that brings us to our final question, the ray of sunshine question, uh, or as one of our recent guests, Michael Falk, I believe you also know, he really reframed it in a way that I think was, it was so beautiful. He called it the gifts of COVID. Um, and so the question really is, what do you hope will be a long lasting positive outcome as a result of the global pandemic? So from myself, I would say it has been transformative this year in terms of deepening relationships with um, people in our lives. So, you know, we have a phrase, bubble worthy people, people who are worthy to be in your bubble, that they're sort of, you know, living like you are with the, you know, protections, et cetera. And I would say the relationships that I've deepened with people I've known many years have been tremendous this year. And that actually extends to people in my workplace as well, that um, supporting people and, you know, uh, Cheryl, who's part of our firm, she's our assessment specialist. She and I, in terms of sort of being on this journey this year together, okay, sure, we've got to think differently. Share so-and-so wants such and such. How do we make that happen? So I would say both from a personal and a professional um, perspective, it's been the deepening, certainly not all the way across the board, but selectively having these amazing relationships deepen and coming out of this sort of feeling like, you know, we locked arms and, and we came through it together. 
Well, Fran, I've so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lauren. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.